Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's show, I'm very happy to be joined in the studio by Steve Hamm, the director of the new movie, The Village, which tells the story of New Haven's Little Italy, Worcester Square neighborhood. The Village is going to be premiering tonight at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival uh, at the Whitney Humanities Center at 6.30 p.m. And tonight, of course, is Thursday, June 7th. Uh, but there will be plenty of other opportunities to see, uh, see The Village, it sounds like, as well. But the premiere is happening Thursday, June 7th, 6.30 p.m. at the Whitney Humanities Center. Steve, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you in studio your first in-person radio interview. It's it's great to be here, and it, the setup is very nice, very impressive. Ah, the first time anyone's ever complimented the uh, yeah. WNHH studio space. So, Steve, we've known each other for, I don't know, has it been about a year now that you've been freelancing for The Independent? Um, tell me a bit about uh, about what, when you, when you give the pitch of The Village to someone who's never heard of it, what, what you, what's it about? How'd you come to, to tell this story? Yeah. Well... It's first off. It's important to note it's an oral history. Uh, there are more than thirty, probably thirty-five, forty interviews uh, with people who grew up in Worcester Square or got there as immigrants. Uh, often, people are, tell their own story, their parents' story, and their grandparents' story. And I have been uh, really infatuated with oral history ever since I read Studs Terkel's Working. I think back in 1972 or something like that. And I just, the, the whole notion of real people telling their own stories. And I think the stories of just regular people are often fascinating, exciting, dramatic, moving, all of those things. So uh, I wanted to do an oral history about this place. And uh, I thought it was important uh, to capture it that way and to also you know, the, the photographs, the family photographs, the historic photographs. So, it, you know, a lot of stories are told through experts and stuff like that, but I wanted to tell the story th- through the people who experienced it. Mm. That is uh, one of the uh, remarkable things about this movie is that, you, right, this is uh, you know, not a movie of expert talking heads. As you said, there aren't a lot of professional historians uh, uh, talking about the history of Worcester Square. Rather, you are speaking with both prominent political figures, uh, maybe John De- former Mayor John DeStefano, uh, current congressperson, longtime congressperson Rosa DeLauro, uh, some of the more prominent, but also just everyday people, people who grew up in the neighborhood, kind of spanning the past, I don't know, 70, 80 years uh, as New Haven's Italian-American neighborhood flourished, and now you track kind of its, its demise, or at least its winnowing as that type of an ethnic neighborhood. Um, can you tell me a bit about who you spoke with for this documentary, why you picked these particular people? Uh, what, what were the kinds of stories you were, I mean, thinking back to this Studs Terkel mode, what, what kinds of stories were you hoping to get from just the people on the ground of the history of Worcester yeah. Square's Italian-American neighborhood? Sure. Well, first off, let me, t- let me tell me how the whole thing started. I mean, I, I live on Worcester Square my apartment looks across the square at St. Michael Church, and uh, I work, I'm a freelancer, and I work in the front of my apartment, and as I sit there at my, at my table working, I would see funerals. They start at St. Michael's, and then the procession with the cars would come around the corner and go right past my house, and I just looked at it, and I said, every funeral is the loss of a life full of stories, and I said, 
these stories have to be captured. They can't just go this. They can't just disappear like this. And uh, so um, I decided, I looked around, and there had been wonderful books uh, written by Rich Biondi, by by Anthony Riccio, by and some others, kind of about the immigrant experience, about it Worcester Square, but no real documentary film. So, except there are always pizza movies, you know, not to make light of pizza, but... <laughs> It's a different thing. Right. But, but I, I mean, something yep. that New Haven yeah. is well known for, and this seems to be the epicenter yeah. of it. But you wanted to go beyond pizza? Is what yes, you're beyond me? pizza. That's the theme. And um, yeah, it's about the people. It's not about the pizza. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, right around the same time, uh, I was on Facebook. And, and when, when was this? Oh, this was August 2017 was when I decided to make a movie. And. Uh, I noticed Frank Carano, who is a great um, man of Worcester Square, he lives in Brantford now, but he was a, a, an important labor leader in, in New Haven for, for many years. The head of the, the teachers' union? Led the strike in 1970s and all that kind of stuff. Just a good guy. On Facebook, his wife had, had recently died, and he was, he was in a very kind of a, a mood of remembering fond, fond recollections, and he started talking about stories on, the face, on Facebook. I called him up. We we had lunch at, at Pepe's, and we said, "Well, let's let's do this project." So that's really how it started. And in terms of how we picked people, I mean, it was just kind of like one person would recommend somebody else, and somebody would say, "Oh, you got to talk to so and so." And you know, a lot of a lot of the people I interviewed are, are old. Some are very old. Uh, so others would kind of be the intermediaries. And uh, and you know, I. I, I ask people for their fond recollections. I ask them for their, you know, what, how rough, how tough was it growing up there? What was it like? But I also, my organizing principle was that the the values were the things that that held people together, and that I wanted to explore. And they were uh, the values of immigrants, you know, uh, hard work, family, faith, and fraternity. I just so I, uh, but you know, or sorority whichever or, or, or both uh then that is i define as the notion that people believe we're all in it together mm. so you i think you've laid out a few of the uh if organizing principles if not outright sections of of the movie in uh you know faith hard work uh certainly labor organizing uh his you know the importance of a family the importance of food um could you uh maybe Take take a, a little bit of a, a deeper dive for me and the listeners as to you know into one of those themes what you what you learned about the history of I don't know labor organizing in Worcester Square or the history of how food was kind of an organizing principle for a family and for a community I mean what what did these you know once you began to recognize that there were certain high level themes that interested you across all of these individual stories. Uh, what did you What did you learn as you dug into them about I don't know what they what they tell you about the history of Worcester Square? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually, you know the the themes. The first person I interviewed was Frank Carano in in his backyard, and uh, when I asked Frank, I think my first question, I can't remember quite what the first question was, but he, he his answer was, "I see Worcester Square. It was." A village. It was an enclave. It was a, a place where people lived, worked, prayed. Their whole lives could could happen there. You know, it was all is all so very concentrated. They were all so uh, 
in similar situations and stuff like that. And he said, the val- here are the four values that hold them together. So it was like his, the first, uh, you know, 50 or 60 words out of his mouth became, that was the movie. You know, and now of course we added some other elements to it, but that was the core of it. So, uh, I advise any other filmmaker uh, when you're starting a movie to interview somebody who really knows what the heck they're talking about. So, mm-hmm. so it can help you shape it. You know, if you, if you're not an insider, it's important to get inside. So, and did you but, find yourself yeah. uh, and with Frank Carano as maybe the the epicenter, the starting point of this journey? And then, did you find yourself kind of radiating out to the different degrees of separation from Frank Carano or was it uh, because most, most of the people you interview are, uh, you know, of a similar generation. I mean, people in their seventies, eighties, nineties, even people who grew up in Worcester square in the, I don't know, I take, I guess the thirties and forties, if not even a bit earlier. And even they are sharing, you know, a lot of the time that they spend on screen is talking about their parents and their grandparents uh, who were the kind of first generation uh, or the actual immigrants uh, kind of coming from the Amalfi Coast and elsewhere yeah. in Italy to New Haven. So um, was this kind of seven degrees of separation from Frank Carano? Well, <laughs> not not really. Uh, the, the, the first degree of separation was his sister, Teresa Argento. And while Frank was a leader in the labor union and the teachers union, Teresa was one of the leaders in Worcester Square, and it's interesting because you look at people like uh, Louisa DeLauro, who was the longtime older woman from part of that neighborhood, and uh, there's Bev Carbonella, there's the, uh, uh, Teresa Argento. The, actually, a lot of the leaders in Worcester Square were women. They were very strong. Uh, they had their own societies, and they were advocates for the community and for its well-being, and, and they were some of the leaders in saving it. And we can talk later, if you want to, about saving it from as much as possible from the highway project. Uh, so, but it was just like, you know, I, I live in the middle of Worcester Square and of course in New Haven, every, it's like so many networks, you know, you keep finding people you know and they know somebody else and and so it was introductions like that and and, and after, one of the great things about this was um, Ed Stannard from the Register wrote a piece about the project that was published last December and as a result of that piece, we got, of course, more uh, people interested and found more people to talk to. And we did it with Facebook as well. So, uh, and then, and the great break there also was, you know, I had my eye on the New Haven Documentary Film Festival because, you know, you make a film, you want it to be shown somewhere. And so I thought, oh, that would be the place to show it. And, uh, the morning that the story was published in the register and it was published online as well as in print, uh, Charlie Musser, uh, one of the co-directors of the film festival, sent me an email that says, we want it. Hmm. So it was like, boom. You know, of course, there was a lot of work still to do, and we got good feedback from him and, and Gorman to, to make it better. But anyway, I want to go back to something that you said uh, before about going deeper on some of these values. You know, uh, I, I, I think that whole, the value of fraternity, that we're all in it together, I think is one of the core values of America. Mm. Now there's another core value of America, which is basically, you know, I did it myself, you know, and self-reliance and all this kind of stuff. And if you think about it, these are the things that are at war with each other in America today. And, uh, uh, if, if they're in balance, you have a healthy society. If they're out of balance, you have 
a society at war with itself or an unhealthy society. So I really wanted to go deep on that one. And, and part of it's the union, but really more of it's the, the neighbors, the people you know, the people that you will help, you know, the, the people don't, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, those societies over there in Worcester Square, St. Andrews, St. Mary Magdalena, those were social service agencies as much as anything else. I mean, they weren't just people playing dominoes. I mean, they, um, you know, they had, uh, uh, you know, lists of places to get jobs. They taught people English. They taught them how to, you know, they taught them arithmetic practically. Banks, they taught them how markets, to be voters. Yeah. They got them registered, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was this very, very strong uh, fraternity, fraternal and service and, um, you know, group value, heavy group value. And I, and I thought that, to me, that's something that just matters tremendously. And I'm, I'm, you probably can guess about me that I'm on the side of the we're all in it together. So, <laughs> so a good it, side to be. Yeah, it resonates uh, a lot with me. So, uh, so that was a really important thing. And, you know, some of the other values, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but religion was clearly very important to this community in Worcester Square and still is to the to the descendants and you know I, I i work every day and i'm looking at a church and i i gotta tell you making this that church uh, being saint michael's saint michael's yeah uh making this film made me appreciate catholicism more than i ever had before the fact that we have pope francis also helps quite a bit my my, my only the only pope i've ever really liked so you know, but the, but it's it's a key thing. I mean, you, I think you asked before. You know, what what changed in my perceptions of things? And I guess one thing is I just really came to understand more fundamentally how important religion was, especially to the, to those immigrants. I mean, they were here. Some of the, I mean, some of them came in groups. Some of them came by themselves, and they were alone in a way. And of course, they're, they're the fraternity of, of other people they helped, but religion was extremely important. Well, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Steve Hamm, the director of the new movie, The Village, about the history of New Haven's Little Italy, the Worcester Square neighborhood. Steve, I want to ask you about, uh, I want you to single out two parts of the movie, and I'm going to share my uh, my responses as well. One is a, a favorite interview, not, not Frank Carano, but a different one that you think is maybe representative of uh, the the type of story you're trying to tell in the village or just got at a really interesting tidbit, a really interesting moment uh, that you are particularly proud of sharing. So a favorite interview and then also a, a favorite moment, a favorite historical moment that you share um, about uh, Worcester Square's history as an Italian-American neighborhood. Uh, just because I'm talking right now, I'm going to share uh, my one of my favorite interviews you were talking a little bit before air, before we went on uh, is with John Cavalier, who's the uh, owner of Lyric Hall, the wonderful small theater out in Westville. Uh, John has been in New Haven really his entire life, and he talks about how uh, he comes from a family of barbers. I think his... his uh, uh, his dad and his dad's, I think, six other brothers were all barbers, except for one who wound up becoming a professor. I think there's this wonderful archival shot that you have, the seven brothers lined up, all, all seven of them together. And then we hear about the history of, of the barber shop, how successful it was, how 
John's parents wound up uh, catering to not just men, but to women in downtown New Haven. And uh, at the time, I take it was in the, I don't know, 40s or, or 50s, that it's quite rare for a male uh, barber to to cut the hair of, of women. It wound up being a, a very successful thing. But I, I found that, I mean, not just because of my own uh, personal relationship with John right now. Well, it's always exciting to see him, you know, tell uh, his story uh in a movie, but it also gets at, I think what, going back to the beginning of the interview, that kind of studs turkle worker mentality, uh, where you have one kind of just regular person from New Haven telling their story about their parents' experience, about the growth of their business, about how the changes they had to make in order to become uh, more successful, and about even the diverging paths of some of the brothers that gets at uh, the whole kind of trajectory of like the Italian-American experience in New Haven that you're, you're trying to get at. It starts as a very kind of poor and working class immigrant experience and one of pretty phenomenal social ascent to the world of Kind of business leaders and academics and lawyers and professionals, uh, and then slowly but surely a kind of uh, moving away from the neighborhood to East Haven or, or wherever else uh, that migration may take them. Um, all to say, I'd say the John Cavalier interview is one of my favorites. Yeah. I wonder if you could pick a pick a particular interview and tell us a bit about why that was one of your favorites. Okay, so I loved many of these interviews. I, I thought they were fascinating, and I, and I got to tell you. I don't know if it comes through, but the emotion was there. It was raw. I mean, I would say half the people I interviewed started to weep when they talked. Usually it was about their parents, and it was just so touching. And, you know, these are people who have been through life, rough and tumble life, and, and they would get so tender when they talked about how their parents cared for them or what they dreamed, how they sacrificed. But I'll tell you about one really unusual interview, and it was, um, so I live at, on Academy Street in the corner with Green in a building that was built in 1865 by some you know, successful merchant or something like that. And uh, the building was, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, or maybe earlier, I don't know what, but it was owned by an Italian family for many years, several generations, the Ionatis. And... Uh, so I, I discovered a guy, Larry Iannotti, who actually was born and grew up in the apartment where I live. Mm. And uh, so I went and I, I, I spoke to him at his, his mm, maybe his late 80s, early 90s. I'm not sure. He might, I think he's probably in his 90s. I mean, he was a great guy. He, he told me wonderful, delightful stories of his youth. Uh, but just the... The fact that we sh- we shared this space and tie over uh, you know decades and stuff like that it, it made me think about how buildings are the connective tissue between in society between people and between between in in time and stuff like that and how they can kind of you realize by the by the shared physical space that hey you share a lot of other things as well so uh, it was really great talking to him and I guess he told me some funny stories. His, his father wanted him and his brother to be enterprising and to make money. So he took a baby carriage and he uh, took off the, the, the carriage, uh, the, um, uh, the, the crib part or whatever, and he, and he put a box there and he, and he turned it into an ice cream thing. And uh, the, the guys would roll around uh, Worcester Square selling ice cream. And, and Larry t- uh, told me that he, he used to go down to the park where the guys were playing cards. And uh, the the guys 
uh, he, they didn't greet him very uh, warmly, uh, but he hung out. And uh, finally, w- what happened was uh, uh, he would come down there every day, and to get rid of them, they would buy his ice cream. So it became his. I, actually, this didn't get into. You know, some of the stories are a little too long, but uh, it didn't get into the movie. But it was a delightful story, and and I just uh, there was just um, a, a great warmth. And I, I got to tell you also, I am not Italian, right? I, my ancestors are from Germany and Scotland and England and and Ireland and things like that. But uh, people were very welcoming to me. It, you know, they didn't treat me like an outsider. They just opened up. Mm. Maybe it's because we're all Americans, you know. Have you always had an interest in Italian-American culture and history? Or was it this particular neighborhood and its own specific history that drew you into the story? Well, it began when I met my wife, whose maiden name was Lisa Mancuso, in New York City. And uh, that was in the 70s. And uh, one side of her family was Italian-American. So I got to know them. And uh, and then we've been to Italy a number of times, either for work or for vacation. And I just love Italy. And in fact, we went back to the village in Sicily where one part of her family came from. uh, And it was just an incredible experience. Just to, to kind of, she was researching into her past, finding... I mean, everywhere we turned were cousins on the street, and the, you know the records of her of her great grandparents were in the um, town hall and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't know what it is about Italy. It's just, I mean, in spite of the fact that so much that's about Italy in popular culture is about the mafia, I think a lot of people understand that that's that may be a good story, and it's certainly part of history, but that there's there's this wonderful, rich culture and these wonderful, there's this kind of a style of living that is so attractive to us, whether we're from Italy or not. It's just kind of, hey, let's do that, you know. I think that's a good transition to that. The next question I had, uh, which gets at the the historical approach to a movie like this, uh, uh, maybe at the, uh, you know, most enjoyable level, I just want to hear what your favorite, the kind of favorite moment in history that you learned uh, about in, in by in making this documentary, I certainly loved learning about uh, to the extent that one can love learning about something so tragic. But the Franklin Street fire was something I had no idea about. Talk about uh, love what you say about buildings being a, a shared space across time, not just across a, an immediate uh, kind of physical uh, awareness. But that building uh, certainly was uh, uh, you know a place where a lot of young women had a very similar experience, kind of toiling away. Uh, was it a dressmaking factory? That yeah, it was in? Uh, I thought that was the most uh, kind of shocking and. And then you amazing. talked about firefighters who were yeah. involved, uh, women yeah. who survived it. So, um, hey, tell us about that moment or another yeah. historical moment right. that really jumps so, out at you. In the 1950s, uh, you know, the the Italian American community in Worcester Square had been going strong for 50 years, and but there were, you know, after the Second World War, people, you know. People went went to the war. They came back. They went to the GI Bill. You know, there was a people became more successful. They moved to other places, and uh, while there were still new immigrants coming in, there was a lot of out outflow, and uh, and then there was urban renewal. And the urban renewal was really, uh, in the case of Worcester Square, um, almost like an assault on the community itself. It was basically ultimately just took out 
one third of Worcester Square, like almost as if it was you know, like Syria or something like that. And uh, so, but but in the middle of that, in 1957, there was a fire at on Franklin Street at a basically it was a it was a dress shop in particular, and uh, in the building there were different shops from different companies on different levels. The first level there was actually a some kind of um, machine shop or something like that. But um, this reminded me very much of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City uh, on Union Square. This was, I think, in the 20s or teens, which is a thing that brought to public attention uh, the late, you know, the labor abuses, sweatshop labor in, in, in Triangle. The door was locked. Right, in particular, the insufficiency of the fire escapes. Yeah, yeah. And, well, so, and, and in the Franklin Street fire in New Haven, the problem was the fire escape was locked. And it wasn't, it wasn't to lock in the people. It was be- Apparently, some people think it was because there was a school nearby and the kids used to go and to kind of ride the fire escape as, like, for fun. And it was a problem for the owner. So it was bolted. So when this fire started and it was sweeping through this um, this building, the people rushed out the back win- windows and, and went down the fire escape, and then they were blocked. So there were dozens and dozens of people stacked up on the fire escape. And then the fire became so hot that it just burst through the um, the windows and the fire engulfed the people on the fire escape. And this is, I think, in January. It was just, everything was the worst it could possibly be. But the guys downstairs, and I, I interviewed one of the guys downstairs who helped save them. Uh, they, they, got, they got some down off the fire escape. And, and I also interviewed one of the women who had been there. She'd been, I think, in her teens at the time, uh, just off the boat. Just, and uh, she told the story and, and what it was like inside. And, of course, horrif- absolutely horrifying. But, you know, in a way that um, was a symbol of what w- the things were going wrong in that community. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the good days were fading and, and, and it was like one bad thing after another was happening. Um, but, you know, the community d- didn't fold. I mean, it fought the good fight. I mean, the, originally with urban renewal, um, the highway was going to go right through the middle of the square, really destroy the heart of the square. And there was a big battle against that, and they beat that back. And some of the buildings were saved by people who, not just people who wanted to live there, but people who recognized that there was value in old buildings. And I I can't remember who told me, but I believe this was really one of the beginnings of the, 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 the movement in America to rehabilitate landmark buildings rather than to knock them down. And I think it happened right there on Court Street, as a matter of fact. So, uh, anyway, you know, these these tragic things in the 50s were really uh, very dramatic. And, of course, you want to have some drama in your movie, you know. So, it was, uh, history was very obliging. So, you mentioned the, you know, the unfortunate and kind of uncanny connection to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Uh, Do you, what do you think distinguishes New Haven's Little Italy, if anything, from know, other Little Italy's around the country, around the world, is there? I mean, this is a movie that very much celebrates a like a pride of place, right? The village uh, is not just a hypothetical gathering of like, like-minded individuals. It's like a very specific, 
uh, like geographic and historical moment that that very specific individual share. And I wonder if in your you know deep dive into the history of Worcester Square, if you think that there is something that makes New Haven's Little Italy New Haven's. Uh, yeah. It's not asking you to be the you know the expert on little yeah. Italy, little Italy's everywhere, but I don't know anything distinguish this as the Elm City's uh, little Italy versus anywhere else in the world. Yeah, well, of course there are lots of little Italy's and and you know little Germany's and all these places around the country. That's one of the the, the nature of immigration was that people came to where they someone else had established a foothold. I I mean I know a. A place I come from Western Pennsylvania, from Appalachia, and I know a place in West Virginia, a little town where everybody came from Switzerland, and almost everybody who lives there is a descendant of those people. So, I guess that's not so different. But, I, but I think the the key thing here was it was such a concentration of people. They lived, worked, prayed, played all in the same place. Uh, they. Most of them came from the same place, which is the Amalfi Coast. So there was, it's, I think it's just the concentration, all those elements of concentration really made it a good story. Uh, you know, I mean, New York's Little Italy, people came from all over Italy, you know. So I think it's just even more intense. So all you can examine the values and the experiences, and they're kind of at their purest form. In, in this place. So I, I think that's why it's a good story. I, you know, one of the things is we, we made this Scott and I and Frank, uh, Carano, Scott Amor is the editor and, and Frank Carano is the inspiration, but we made this, uh, very much with the local audience in mind, starting, you know, like starting in concentric circles, the, the, the people who have a, a physical and, and, and familial connection to it. And then further out, you know, the neighbors, the, the state so so the question was does this movie have legs could it be seen could it be shown elsewhere and i really haven't figured that out yet partly as you we're going to now try to take it out and see what kind of distribution we can get so we'll see but but i think the fact that here we are in the middle of you know in american history there've always been these backlashes against immigration even as there's waves of immigration i mean they 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 fit with each other and uh and the backlashes often are based on fear and political manipulation and hatred and all those kinds of things and um political calculations and we, of course we're in the middle of one right now i mean this is you know we're, it's a very ugly situation in America today. There have been there have been plenty of other ugly situations. Maybe we thought we'd outgrown the ugly situation that this was becoming a, a better place. But hey, it turns out it's not. So it's a very important reminder of the roots of the country, of how important immigration is to the country, and how important immigrants were and are today. I mean, I see the vitality of America today is all about today's immigration, uh, whether it's from Latin America, uh, Mexico, places in Africa or the Middle East where there are tremendous hardships and reasons to flee. These are highly motivated, hopeful people, just the people you want in your country. So, um, 
This may be asking a question yeah. right after you gave the answer, but I'm going to push you on it anyway, yeah. because I think it's, it yeah. was a defining experience for me in my watching of the movie, which is, I'm going to challenge you a bit to describe why you know, this is more than a nostalgic token for people who lived through the experience that you were describing. Again, the people, you know, most of the interviews, interviewees are, you know, again, people who come from this neighborhood, who are recalling, you know, the a decades-old history of Worcester Square, and and quite, uh, you know, quite fondly. I mean, they're reflecting upon their childhood, on their parents, on their grandparents. You mentioned the emotional swells that, you know, understandably come when, when reflecting upon on their childhood. But I do think that the the tone of the movie overall is one of, um, well, I, I guess I, I want to challenge you to say is this a movie defined by a nostalgia for an era of kind of village life before uh you know globalization and the eradication of you know the viability of this type of kind of everyone leaving their doors unlocked and you know neighbors supporting neighbors and you know the uh that kind of halcyon days of your mentality um does this movie in your eyes speak to uh anyone who was not a part of that generation, who didn't experience it firsthand. Yeah. Well, we tried to, I think the key word is balance. We tried to balance between kind of the fond recollections, which will be very meaningful, and the stories, the beautiful stories that are meaningful to, uh, to people who are connected to this experience. And the more like, it's, it's, it's part fond recollections and it's part Ken Burns, you know, and those things do kind of pull against each other. As a matter of fact, early on in the making of the film or kind of halfway through, it was clear when I showed the first draft, Frank Carano, he was a bit disappointed and he, and it was, became clear that from the start, he, he saw it as fond memories and I saw it as Ken Burns. And even though we had, I think we'd expressed ourselves to each other, we didn't understand that it was going to be somewhere in the middle and that you had to figure out where the middle was. And uh, so it, I think it has both. I mean, I did, I mean, there were some elements that were in it at different times. There was a little bit more about organized crime. Or that was, I mean, I don't think there's anything in, in, about organized crime now. Uh, there was also about discrimination. And there was a lot of animus, animus between the Italians and the Irish. And I explored that a little bit. You know, and people said, you know, let's just not go there, you know. And same thing with the uh, with the mafia stuff. People just said, you know, this is well documented. You don't have to go there again. And so I, so they're just like passing references around the edges to things, to those kinds of things. But um, well, you certainly get at it in the mayoral elections in the middle yeah. of the century, right? The yeah. uh, unfortunately, I don't remember any of the bit. names, but the first Italian American. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Salentano, the first Italian American yeah. mayor, was a was an undertaker and he after he won he took a uh, symbolically a casket down the street on a, i guess probably pulled by i don't know what a car or horse or whatever uh to show the irish guy murphy you know had, had had lost but yeah but the question is yeah you know we'll see we'll see i mean i think it does have a strong message for people beyond the the fond recollection people i mean uh you know especially as i said you know, at the time of Trump and this uh, anti-immigration backlash. So we'll see. I mean, hopefully people, and I, I don't, it doesn't try to preach too much about this, though. Right at the end, there's a coda, you, you saw, of, of Chris George 
of IRIS, the Refugee Settlement Agency, basically stating very boldly, very eloquently, and very briefly the case for immigration in America. But we, I had that in different pot spots in the film, and then we decided at the end, you know, a, a little coda is really the spot to put it, mm-hmm. and part because what's the last thing you see is the, is the thing that, you know, you remember, that's the point. So without, without dwelling on it throughout, there it was... Well, as, as we uh, wind down the interview, I want to yeah. make sure to ask a bit about where this movie falls in your own professional history. I mean, wh- uh, where where is this in terms of other movies you've made? Yeah. I know I see you all around town making shorter documentaries about everything from, you know, marches in New Hallville to uh, New ha- New, the New Haven police uh, to an upcoming brewery in the Fairhaven yeah. neighborhood. Um, where Where's this? You met- And you mentioned you're from Western Pennsylvania, but yeah. maybe tell us a bit about the arc your own oh, personal professional sure, art. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, here. so I, I I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania called Export. It was a coal mining town before I was there. Called Ex- Export. 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 Uh, actually, the Mellon family came from there. They they owned, they owned started some of the first mines there. But uh, I went on to, uh, to be a journalist, and I was a journalist for 30 years, and then I was... Uh, a writer for organizations or editor for organizations, including IBM, chief storyteller for IBM. And it was really, I mean, I, had, I worked at Business Week for a number of years. I started, we started doing video because you could do it online. I mean, it's just the early days of the technology. And then at, at IBM, I really learned to start making short videos. And I, I learned partly by, they had professional production teams or even documentary makers doing stuff for them. And I would, be involved with that sometimes writing a script or something so i would see how it was done and i started making them myself because you can't hire you know i mean ibm w- would be somebody would hit them for fifty thousand bucks for a three minute video you know and, and we couldn't do that very much so we had to make videos ourselves so i gradually learned how to make it i bought my own camera i, st- I gradually learned so what's an know, example of a type of video you made while chief storyteller well, for ibm I mean, when, when was this that you were chief storyteller? For uh, it was 2009 to 2016. Um, well, my some of my favorites were I, w- I was involved in a program or IBM sent people from all around the world to a certain place. It's uh, called the Corporate Service Corps to bring their skills together to help somebody there, often a community, get something done, social progress. And we actually went, I went to Belém, uh, Brazil. Uh, which is at the mouth of uh, the Amazon. And uh, we were working with the Nature Conservancy about preserving the trees, the, the trees in the Amazon. So I made a film about that, and, and that was, you know, I before a lot of what I did was you know, film corporate guys talking with their, you know, their, with their shirts and ties on or, or, or you know, inventors, which was which more fun. But suddenly I was out on the tributaries to the Amazon filming at dawn with the, with the birds waking up and and out seeing, you know, clear cutting of trees. And so it became much more, you know, the, the ability to tell a story that was really very visually interesting and important to the planet very directly, you know. So, uh, you know, I that helped shape my thinking. I mean, I, when I when I came back to New Haven, I, I'd, I'd worked here in the '80s as a, a reporter for the Register. Came back to New Haven in twenty six. What was your beat for the Register? Well, it was um, I was the first. I was a police and fire reporter, and then I was a labor reporter. There were a lot of good strikes, like one at Yale, and then I was the business editor. So it, it that was my migration. 
So, um, but when I came back here, one of the reasons I wanted to come to New Haven was I said, I've, I had written and done stuff on a global level. I mean, I wrote about uh, globalization, you know, and my audience was global. And I felt like I'd actually had an impact um, uh, on that. And I said, well, now I want to try it on a, on, a, on a community, on a local. And so you can see how the Worcester Square story could come out of that. I mean, I, I believe that we can make tremendous social progress. New Haven is the kind of place that has, it has both the problems and the people with the values and the gumption to, to do something about it, to advance society, to address inequality, all those kinds of things, and to be kind of a, a laboratory experiment of that kind of thing. So I did the Worcester Square thing, and now I'm doing something uh, about community policing, which, of course, has been here since the 90s. But once again, because of all of this attention to um, overreaction by police all around the country and, you know, the, the national anthem, all this kind of stuff, suddenly it's new again. I mean, the, you have it's, it's a good time to explore the basic tenets of community policing, how you do it, how hard it is to really do it. I mean, here's a place, New Haven, where it is the philosophy of the police department and the strategy of the police department to see people in the community as your partners and you're your, your, their servant and see them as individuals, you know, not as people to be uh, controlled or arrested or and even here, you know, it's a daily battle to, to do that right. Well, as someone who covered the police in the 80s, it'd be a pretty fascinating perspective that I'm sure you will bring to New Haven policing in the 2010s. Um, Steve, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing some thoughts on The Village and on your own career. Tell us again about where people can watch The Village. Uh both tonight and then in the future, and where people people can learn more about your writing, your filmmaking, just what what you do. Okay, good. So, um, so tomorrow night, June or tonight, June seventh at six thirty at Whitney Humanities Center, fifty three Wall Street. The film is being shown uh, as part of the New Haven Documentary Film Festival. We have a second date. We're actually thinking that. The uh, theater and that's might, free, open to the public. It's free, yeah. Free, free, open to the public. Free. Uh, we think that the seats will be full, and there might be an overflow. So, and people, we don't want people to be disappointed. So, we were able to quickly arrange a second showing. This at the State House, which is a little theater that's being renovated. I think it's at 300 State is the address. That's the that, that's the address of the parking lot. Right, and, just and south of Chapel. So yeah, State that's and right. Chapel. Right. So they're going to do something on July 15th, I believe, at 4, well, 5 o'clock, I think, is the showing time. And then we're going to try to have it in other places, the District, uh, Lyric Hall, try to get it on Connecticut Public Television. If anybody's listening with a good in at Connecticut Public Television, please contact me. Uh is there a, a website or a Facebook page people can keep up to date with on these various screenings at the state? We House do have elsewhere? a Facebook page called The Village, and uh, so yeah, you can look there. So we'll make sure and, to link to that on the Deep yeah, Focus Radio. And we're gonna, we we hope to have uh, to make DVDs, but we this is not a business, so we have to figure out how to make DVDs and distribute them without selling them, kind of. So it's you know it's a little tricky. <laughs> I mean, an important thing. 
One, one point I'll make about documentary filmmaking is in my experience, it, it used to, and it still does for some people, cost millions of dollars to make a documentary film. But today, with a relatively inexpensive camera, a Macintosh computer, a Final Cut Pro, and a few other little odds and ends, uh, you can, and you study and you learn and you practice, anybody can make a documentary film. And I think that the, the democratization of this form is, I think, one of the wonderful things that's happening in the world today. I mean, that people can express themselves in this way in a form that people want to see, uh, hear stories. Uh, and it's not just limited to the few with the money. Anybody can tell a story. And the New Haven Documentary Film Festival truly is a we'll testament to that yeah, idea, right. right? It's not just we'll show it, but you know, it's eleven days and eighty yeah. some odd films, and it really spans the you know the whole uh, width of experienced filmmakers, new filmmakers, students, pros. Um, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to having you on again to talk about community policing or whatever your next project winds up being. Okay, thank you.